Thank you very much for downloading this podcast. If you like this podcast, why not tell a friend about it? Subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get it from. That helps more people find the podcast. Um, This week, Michael Palin. At school, one of the things I was quite good at was English and writing original essays. And I can remember enjoying writing stories. I can't remember sort of what age that was. I think that was actually... Shortly after I went away to school, to, I went to Shrewsbury when I was about 13. And I remember then writing very graphic, usually horrifically violent stories, graphic. which Mr Bevan would uh, give me three A stars for and all that. He liked all that sort he of stuff. He didn't sort of ship you off to a psychiatrist? No, he? no, I think he... <laughs> I thought a lot of people at that school needed to be shipped off to psychiatrists before me. Um but I can remember when, even before I went away to school, um, I enjoying compiling books of my own, usually from bits of newspaper, or there would be books about sport. And I would cut bits out of the newspaper, arrange them in a certain way, editorialise a little bit by writing about the things in between. So I was kind of writing my own little newspaper from about the age of I kind of eight or nine, I should think. And have you tried to look back and think where that came from? Were your parents writing? Were there people that you were reading and you're thinking, I want to be them? You know, did you have an eye to a career? I don't know where it came from. I mean, I came from a generation of people who wrote a lot. My parents both wrote letters, a copious amount of letters. That's how they communicated. And I remember both my mother and father had most exquisite handwriting, which none of our generation had, and certainly none of my son's generation. Had. Dreadful handwriting. And the you know the, the grandsons just used the iPad. But so they wrote a lot. I I also read a lot at, at the time. We didn't really have television and all that sort of thing. So reading was the main thing. I enjoyed going to the library a lot. I enjoyed the feel of words. But when did that become a means to performance? I never ever thought of myself as writing comedy in the way that my heroes when I was at at home, people like Galton and Simpson uh, and Spike Milligan were heroes. Uh, I got to, I um, enjoyed their work. Then I went to university, met somebody who had more confidence than than myself. Uh, We we just told jokes to each other and he said, look, why don't we just, let's write some of these down. Let's put together a half-hour show and we can do a cabaret and you can pick up a bit of money you know sort of 30 shillings a night by doing a cabaret at the jazz club or something like that I didn't know what cabaret meant he organized me into writing for the stage really I suppose as simple as that so we wrote ourselves a half hour act which we we would put on at various parties in Oxford and all that was any good well we kept on going people laughed and we, we we never lost confidence so it must have been okay there must have been something working there there were strange sort of pieces we did. I remember uh, something about old friends, Nazi war criminals meeting up again and things like that, and a man who ate bananas compulsively being interviewed, which made the interview very difficult because just eating enormous amount of bananas. And a foreign advert for Tide um, soap powder. It was just, oh, you're Tide Germont, Tide Germont, and the wolves, and both of them go again. He pours it into a bowl and then eats it. So he's clearly got it wrong. So it was stuff like that. That's um, very painful, but uh, painful. went down okay. Well, you try eating <laughs> yeah. bananas every night. But you said um, you said that the confidence um, is that you needed, and that your friend gave you the confidence. Was that the confidence to put those things down on paper? Was it to stand up and say it out loud to a room of people? What, what, what was the confidence bit? Confidence that you had, you could do something that other people would sit and listen to. 
normally I was just the person who would sit and listen and I would admire as I still do performers and all that but to put myself in that position to turn the tide around and say look um, you've got something to say that will shut the room up and get them sort of listening that that was the confidence I needed I, I'd done some acting at um, at school and some acting at university as well so I knew I could act all right but just going in front of a a group with material you'd written yourself and believing in yourself enough to think that people would would sit and listen to you rather than somebody else. That, that was where the confidence was needed. And you do sometimes forget that Python came together as a group of writers, not necessarily performers. Mm. So how important was it for you guys that it, that it was your own stuff and you had the control and you were writers first, performers second, is that fair? I think it probably is fair. It's just that... that Writing was the, the kind of the original creative act. Without the writing, nothing was there. Then you give it to actors. But if we could act it ourselves, then you, you know somehow we had more control over it, and we could we could work on it as we were performing because it was our material. We didn't have to explain it to anybody else. So in a sense, it was a shortcut from writer to actor for us to do it ourselves. But also, I think that was the tradition at, at the university at at Oxford and at Cambridge at the time, was to write and perform your own material. How did you and Terry Jones, because that was your sort of writing mm. unit, wasn't it? How did you guys come together? How did you work together? Terry was a year ahead of me at, at Oxford, and I liked him very much as a performer. He was a very good actor. He was also a very, very funny man and a really and a very nice guy. So we got on very well. And we were both cast in the... Oxford Review at the Edinburgh Festival in 1964, which was the single most sort of important performance, I suppose, for my important kind of appearance I ever did in my life, because that was the one um, in which you were judged not just by your fellow uh, undergraduates, but by all the world who'd come to Edinburgh. And it was a very successful review, and we had to put on extra shows and all that. And Terry and I, after that, began to write things together he had a writing partner called miles kington who's very 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 funny guy uh, died tragically young a few years ago and i didn't want to impinge too much on that writing relationship writing relationship a bit like sort of marriages or 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 you know romances you've got to be very very careful but about you knew you had to get him out of the there. way well i have i, I hope <laughs> terry would sort of drop no because i love working with terry and i knew the three of us couldn't work together um, that just that that would have that wouldn't have sort of been possible. So it had to be me or Miles. And in the end, Terry and I, uh, for whatever reason, ended up writing together. Terry then got a job at the BBC, and I helped him write bits of material for BBC shows where they needed a joke here and there. It might be, you know, um, we even wrote for the Ken Dodd show at one time, but there usually be some some like. Um, Winifred Atwell's music show or something like that, or Russ Conway, people who were not writers but could play the piano well, and we would write a little joke for them to, to start like with. The equivalent now of the people who I imagine have the, the thankless task of writing the asides that like Tess Daly says on Strictly Come Dancing and things, that kind of little, they need a little gag just to get them through to this next bit. A- absolutely, need, yeah. absolutely. That's it. It's humble, humble work, um, <laughs> but it gives you a start yeah. and it gets your name out there. But the real breakthrough came, I suppose, when, when Terry and I were asked by um, James Gilbert, who was the producer of The Frost Report, if we would like to join a group of writers on The Frost Report. 
it was a show, a new kind of show, which put the sort of standard of the writing, raised the bar of the writing quite high. They had a subject each week which would be uh, guide the writers. It could be the establishment, it could be military, it could be teaching. David would read a piece about a subject and then all the jokes would be apposites to whatever the subject was. And, and that actually gave you the chance to think about what you were writing and tailor it to some terrific performers, which were the two Ronnies and John Cleese. It was the first time they got together. And also Frost himself was very encouraging to young writers. It didn't pay you anything. And you were put on a, on a roller caption that went round so fast it took ten episodes before my father could even see that I'd been on it. But uh, it, was an, it was an atmosphere of some quality, and that's where we met all the other Pythons. And um, at the time, and did you see that as an apprenticeship? Did you see it as that this is great, I'm getting my craft down, but I've got my eye on this? Or were you just like, I can't believe it, I'm here, I'm writing jokes on the BBC, what could be better? Well, we were, um, well, I can't speak for Terry, but I think both of us were you know, delighted that we could sell any material to a show of this quality, even if it was just a quickie. And what happened was that we, we actually ended up making a little niche for ourselves by doing uh, little film uh, sections, or three or four or five minutes, like the judges in the playground after the court goes down, they all go on the slides and swings and all that. So we were, we we could see there was progress. We were going from just gag writers to writing something that meant slightly more to us, which was a little film and doing our own little brand of surreal stuff. When you guys came together finally as Python, mm. how would you sort of diagnose what the humour was? It's hard to sum up Python. I think that was part of its quality. It was such a mishmash because nobody quite knew what they were going to get when they tuned in. We didn't quite know what we were going to give them. I suppose you could say that there were there's a group of writers, all of whom had a certain experience over the five or six years, and all of whom decided that you know a certain kind of humour was needed, that the BBC had got a little bit ossified into sitcoms, very good sitcoms and all that. But... There were kind of rules and regulations to shows, you know, having a <clears throat> beginning, middle and end to sketches, having a, a musical act in the middle, all that sort of thing. What, I suppose what, what we all felt was, why do you need that? Why can't you just throw everything up in the air and just just let's make people laugh and let's not worry about if um, a sketch doesn't have a beginning, middle and an end. If it can be fragmented and those fragments can be put together, uh, sewn together, that's fine. Let's do something that's never been done before. I think one of the key elements was Terry Gilliam as an animator. I think it's kind of over, often overlooked how important Terry was. Uh, the fact we had Terry to fill in all those little holes between sketches that didn't sort of beginning, didn't begin or end conveniently, and also do it in such a sort of wild, strong, powerful, wacky, inventive, dangerous, silly way was was a, a terrific bonus. And you'd, get, and you'd have more licence with it, because I guess you couldn't, in live action, have someone drinking someone's brain through a straw. No, no, no exactly, <laughs> yes. I, I, I mean, and we were always pushing the boundaries, not deliberately, but just saying, well, you know, can we... This, is this funny or is this is this not funny? Let's just say it and see what happens. And of course, for the first series of Python, the BBC barely noticed us because we were on very late at night, and they didn't worry about us. They they were just sort of giving us something to do, keep us quiet. By the second series, we I think we come second in the Golden uh, Rose of Montreux. We won the Silver Rose um, to 
Austrian, wacky Austrian comedy won the, the gold. So we, we were attracting a bit of attention. That's when the BBC started to get a little bit nervous about what we were saying. But basically, the idea of Python was to throw everything in there. We all had great respect for each other as writers. Um, and everyone came from a slightly different angle on their materials. What was your angle? What, what were you throwing into that mix? I think that Terry and myself, we tended to write the more surreal, slightly more whimsical things. Um, Spanish Inquisition, I think of that, or something like Lumberjack Song. Odd connections uh, intrigued us. You know, how'd you get from a barber to a lumberjack or something? Someone in a northern, I was talking about the mill, trouble at mill to the Spanish Inquisition coming in. You know, I, I think we, we were just, we, we were liked doing, doing things that were kind of... Um, completely off the wall and disjointed. John and Graham were slightly more serious. They'd take something and they'd brilliantly work it out. But there was always a logic to what they were doing, whereas Terry and I were not. No logic. There wasn't always a logic. Uh, The great thing is we were all affected by each other. I mean, people did. uh, We didn't stick absolutely to categories of what we should do. And that was the joyful thing about it. What was someone going to bring in that day? And also, a very important part of Python, especially, you know, the first series was that we spent quite a lot of time in a group together around a table saying how can we how can we cement this all together we've got some nice funny items but and and lots of things would spin off there and characters would come out but before that you were when you were sat in a group you were pitching to each other it was a, it was a heady time i don't know if i could do it now but what happened was that um, Terry and myself would bring in our material that we'd been working on for three or four days and John and Graham would bring in theirs eric his his material and um, for some reason I was always the one who read our material and Terry didn't seem to mind too much about that and John read his material I mean Graham never read a- any of the material so it was up to myself and John I suppose to sort of sell the material to the rest but in the same way that now each of the pythons despite you all I imagine getting on very well you could be very sort of scathing about each other's work post python when you were in that writing room, mm. were you, I don't know, as, as John Cleese s- sat up to do a bit of his writing, you're thinking, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were very, very, we, we were very supportive of anyone reading something they'd written. There was a great respect for the fact you'd written something. Yeah. That was a primary thing. It's sort of slightly after a bit, you could have slightly send people up when, you know, John and Graham used to write sketches where they'd use the same word. They, they, we, we used to call them thesaurus sketches where they get... You know, so, so he's done, he's done uh, 25 words meaning the same thing. So we knew when those come, the bit, bit of a yawn then. But generally speaking, it was you, you were given time and you're greatly respected, especially kind of Eric Wright reading his own stuff, you know, kind of didn't have someone there beside him who was going to laugh straight away. But it was great when you got people really to laugh. Um, and John John had a terrific laugh, still does. And once he breaks up, I mean, it's just you think his whole insides are going to come <laughs> spilling out. His terrible sort of <gasps> heaving, retching. There were differences always in our lifestyles uh, and what we thought was important, not important. Politics, you know, um, Terry would be very, suppose, I suppose, the most vocal, um, kind of radical member of the group. And the more radical he got, the more sort of right-wing John would appear to be. So he, he, John could goad Terry 
into great fury and typewriters were thrown and all that sort of thing. And and John would also, there was other things about Terry being Welsh. And, and John would encourage Terry to talk about being Welsh and then give him a terribly hard time about it. And how, if, if one of the problems was, or one of the challenges was cementing all that material together, how did that work when you moved into films? We had a sort of split in the group. Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam and myself, to a certain extent, were absolutely fascinated by film and cinema, so wanted to put something on a bigger screen. John and Graham were less interested, although they were writing material for the, for the screen, but they just wanted somewhere where they could sell their material. So I think we were very much aware it had to be cinematic, it had to be something um, different from just putting together you know, three shows to cover 90 minutes. Um, and... We had a lot of discussions about that and how best to do a film because we did, and now for something completely different, which was really just a collection of sketches reshot for the American market. And we all, all felt, I think, that was a bit bitty, but certainly the two Terrys and myself felt it just was not using cinema as well as we could. So when we sat down to write a film, there was a definite you know, feeling which we know, um, or rather, exploration we'd never had before about the material and what kind of material should it be and how is it going to hang there for 90 minutes. And the feeling was straight away that you had to have a story. This wasn't just going to be lots of funny moments. Um, there had to be a narrative carrying it through and it had to be a narrative which got over that period of about 50 minutes where people can take lots of jokes, but then the last sort of... 40 minutes of it they need to be you know there needs to be something more so when you got to holy grail and life of brian was the idea that you'd bash out a uh, a narrative arc and then you could go away in your units and you could hang on the little kind of pastiches and moments and funny bits that kind of like went throughout it yeah it's very much um trying to find a framework and terry and myself had written this little sketch which began with the castle battlements it's it's the swallow sketch basically we just written this randomly for something or other and we began to talk about a medieval period as a wonderful look for a film and um and something terry jones is a proper historian so he obviously terry knows jones about a proper it historian and we, we were looking at films then that terry and i used to go to things like pasolini you know, and where they look wonderful and we're all set in sort of italy 300 400 years ago um, so visually, we thought medieval stuff would be striking. And then, well, they're knights and they're on a quest. How about, you know, they're, they're the knights of the round table. And suddenly that fell absolutely into the right place because we could all have, we all be a knight for a start. But then there were lots of other things that could happen, ventures on the way. It's just a myth. So it gave us that flexibility to bring in whatever we wanted around the story of a search. And and it was that was that was what was so good. So we had very silly things like the the black knight or you know the the wedding scene with the curtains and all that, which were just there because they were medi- they had a medieval basis. There was sort of actually kind of the architecture, the way it looked, and all that had a sort of visual unity to it, from which we could just go off and do daft things. And because you're in the slightly strange position of being, you knew that you guys were all going to be performing it. Mm. As you were writing it, were you rubbing your hands together thinking, oh, this is great, I have a massive beard here, and actually this bit I can put on this big suit of art. You know what I mean? You were already in your mind playing with it. <laughs> well, I mean, we also took a character, created a character for ourselves, you know, and, and I 
once I'd got the character of Galahad, I don't know if I was the first to write myself as Galahad, then I could see him, his, what, what, what was interesting was his sort of contrast with the others, you know, what the others would be like, and particularly with John as Lancelot, you know, this heroic fool going around just carving people up and rescuing people who didn't want to be rescued. And that was the fun. I thought, oh, I've got a Galahad character now. No, she's quite a decent chap, um, been to quite a good school, a bit gullible, um, and he gets himself into this castle which is entirely, entirely full of newborn maidens from which he's rescued by John, who starts stabbing the girl. You know, and it's just... I think it was the possibility then of how the different characters could play off each other. It was a rich and fertile area once we got going. But, uh, again, I look back on it now and I realise that we were very tight for money. It was that we realised when we were writing this could be quite expensive. We solved the problem of horses and, you know, how long that takes to shoot horses very successfully with the coconuts. Uh, it was key to saving the money and the time, really. And the other thing was um, we chose to film in Scotland, which is very much sort of idea Terry Jones and myself had, because the scenery there is so stunning. You've got these lakes and these hills and mountains in the background, very few cars, and it's free. So that was, once we got those elements together, it was okay. I'm, I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we were, it was marvellous, and it cost no money. <laughs> I mean, Python never really made us any money until, yes. well, I suppose when we were successful in America, then the money started yeah. to come in. But never in, never in huge amounts. We never ever earned as much doing Python then as we did two years ago when we did uh, you know, the O2. And when you look back on that time of writing Holy Grail and Life of Brian and going into Meaning of Life, do you look back on that and think... That was great fun. That was me in a room with my mates. We were either dressing up in Tunisia or we were sat around laughing with material. Or was there a point where you thought, actually, this is starting to tire a bit? Well, relations were always a little bit strained. Um, I mean, the, the, the period after the third series, um, which was 1972, John clearly didn't want to do any more. And in fact, during the third series, he hadn't been terribly happy. Um, he felt constricted, restricted within the group, whereas I don't think others of us felt the same. But once John had decided to go, he wasn't going to do any more. Then Eric peeled off to do his own thing. The rest of us, and certainly Graham and Terry, were very keen to try and do another Python series. You know, we got all this, we'd done all that, we had this, we had this, had all this ability, we had these characters we could play, and all that. Um, so there was quite a struggle to get what was the fourth series of six shows together. Um, we got them together, but John didn't appear as a performer. He um, he just did some writing. Uh, so there, there were real tensions there. I remember very difficult discussions um, amongst us all about whether we should do another series or whether we should just leave it. Um, as I say, Eric was going off to do Rutland Weekend. John was doing Faulty Towers. Uh, rather mysteriously, we didn't know quite what he was doing. We were doing this. Oh, I'm just doing a little sitcom uh, with Connie and all that. We thought, oh, boring. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, that was when the kind of what you were describing earlier—that generous mood of here, this is what I've written. Let me yeah. read it. Well, that was that starting to slip as well as part of that. Yes, there was real criticism in the third series about the kind of material we were writing, and also. I think what had happened, the writing balance had, had, had shifted 
and John and Graham, who, who were just the best sketch writers, most brilliant sketch writers, I think, of you know our time, were not producing such good material. And that was clearly beginning to irritate them. And it also meant that Terry Jones and myself were producing a lot more of what I would call pretty substandard material uh, amongst some good stuff. But we were producing a ton of stuff just to fill the gaps. Anyway, when we got onto the film, the films happened and they happened very successfully. And actually the writing process of both Holy Grail and Life of Brian was very successful. And some of it was done on some lovely beaches. But we nice did. Houses. Yes, no, we did. <laughs> we were never ones for great discomfort. Yeah. But then I can remember the, the same uh, issues coming up about strength and material with the meaning of life. That took two or three years to write, a long time. And I think, again, people are beginning to go off in other directions. You know, it was... It, you, you could sort of sense again that the... The debate was an entirely justified debate. Was the material really good enough? We were very sort of proud of our, our record and the fact that we were producing good stuff. And we always felt, you know, if it begins to go off, then we must we must face up to this and say, shall we stop here? But I think that everybody still felt that there was great strength in, in potential in our material. But just we got tired or we got too successful. I don't know what it was. Am I right in saying that The Missionary was the first film that you wrote yeah. on your own? Yeah. How did that change how you worked? I guess you didn't have sort of Terry Jones there to play with and to bounce things off. No, um, I I worked with Tristram Pohl, who's the... No, sorry, Tristram... Richard Longcrane, who was a director, and, and he did Richard III and all that. We, we sort of bounced off each other. It wasn't quite the same as bouncing stuff off Terry, but I used to see Terry quite a lot, and I would show him the script... And we'd still discuss things together. Um, and that was a kind of odd, odd sort of uh, relationship because he could criticise this, that, and the other, but I was the one who had to sort of... Actually do it. Do it and, and get the thing through. But Terry was always very generous with, with just ideas. Say, oh, I think it should be this and be that. And some of the ideas in The Missionary were were Terry's were, were very good. But I knew that really I had to do it myself. It was going to work at all. It had to be what I wanted to do and everything had to be how I wanted it to be. And the funny, uh, uh, you know, funny in my way was uh, creation of characters. I was very, very keen on, on good comic characters. And once you've got a character, and the character sometimes had to be built up quite seriously and then to pay off with, with the humour and all that. The butler so, that would drift off into the garden. Well, it was the butler who had no sense of direction. <laughs> yeah. It was vast house. I suddenly thought, well, that's a great idea. I remember thinking that oh that's 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 uh, that's absolutely sort of um, carrot gold that i think in the back of my mind in a lot of the things that i have been involved in since python broke up i kind of always feel if the pythons were still here there's such a good group of actors and there was such a wonderful group to act with everyone knew the value of sort of underacting and overacting you know <laughs> and they would use them just perfectly and it's quite hard sometimes, I found this with the Ripping Yards, to try and get that sort of performance from people who were uh, purely actors, yeah. who didn't quite understand that you could loosen up and you could do this, that and the other. And, 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 and they were a little inflexible sometimes. And the performances were seriously good, but they lost the 
funny side of serious. You know, you can be serious knowing that by more and more serious you are, the funnier it is. Like Cleese in the pet, in the pet shop, you know, he just maintains this granite face all the time. And that's what's really funny. So I would miss the pythons sometimes. I'd say, oh, I'd love to have the pythons in a ripping yarn altogether, cause just, just as actors. On the other hand, I wanted to write it myself or with Terry because I felt I could bring something out of it that they they couldn't. And I'm quite interested in a, a fruitful couple of years that you had in particular with where you had American Friends, The Weekend, and your first novel, Hemingway's Chair. Was that about sort of two or three years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bewildering time, that. I mean, just American Friends took a long time to gestate, you know, and that was what... That was sort of late 80s, and it wasn't produced until 1991, 92. In the diaries, you sort of talk a lot about the the struggle in handing drafts back and forth between you and Tristram Mm. and need more of this, less of that. Was the issue with that that you were too personally close to it because it was a a family um, story? You see, the thing about American Friends was it, it was the first thing I was really involved in that wasn't primarily a comedy. Or if it was, it was a comedy of manners. Yeah. And um, just tricky to get that right. So I couldn't use surreal, wacky Spanish Inquisition people <laughs> looping in or men dressed as uh, members of the Canadian Mounted Police couldn't come to my rescue. I had to work this through. And we were trying to say quite a number of things about Oxford at that time and about the fact that uh, the hypocrisy of, of of some of the colleges where women were not allowed in, but affairs went on, all that sort of stuff. So there was a there were some serious elements in that, and I think that made me feel a little more precarious as I approached something. I put it this way: I was never quite sure that we got the thing exactly right because I wasn't exactly sure what what right was. You know, yeah. was right making a wonderful collection of characters, telling you something about Oxford at that time, telling the story and in a beautiful surrounding, or was that missing humour? Was that missing some stronger edge that people would want from me? And and what I remember really about that period, seeing, seeing as you bring it up, is I was doing a number of things that weren't expected of me, you know, a, tra- a travel presenter. And why is something going off to be a travel presenter? Acting in GBH, I'd never done anything really on that, that scale, um, TV acting, writing a novel. They're all things where... You know, if, you, if you're looking at the book of how to get on in showbiz, you get a good act and you stick with it. And you know, year after year, you, you, people will love you for it. Um, I've always felt very restless. And this was a restless period. And I was doing a lot of things. And, and though they, you know, they all worked to a certain extent, in the back of my mind, I was aware of, of cutting a bit loose and not being quite sure which audience you were going for, what kind of audience, what an audience expected of you. And can you break, can you do all these things without someone giving you a clip over the ear hole? Which they did eventually with my film, with the, the play The Weekend. I mean, which wasn't a bad play and it still gets, it makes me quite a bit of money around the country from small amateur performances. But there was a definite feeling that the, the theatre critics felt Michael Payne and Richard Wilson, two television stars, put together to try and, you know, bring television into the theatre. Well, this is our patch, Sonny, keep out. You know, and they gave it the most horrible panic. But you had that with writing it in that <laughs> with, with The weekend, you'd know when it would work because there'd be a laugh. 
I guess, because it was yes, so yes, openly yes. comic. Yeah. Whereas when you're doing the novel, where you're doing American Friends, you're thinking, mm. you, you can't show it to someone, see them giggle and think, aha, it's worked. That's actually, yes, yes. The sound of of of, of great interest uh, <laughs> is not something that, uh, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable because yeah. <laughs> I'm not hearing that gurgle, that noise from the throat, which says we're laughing, which is very, you're absolutely right. I'm brought up on that and it's quite hard not to, not to know. But it, it, I mean, with... Um, with American Friends, I can just remember it was a great, not American Friends, sorry, The Weekend was a wonderful sort of, the, the fact it was live, the fact every night something different. Going. To go there and see which joke worked well one night, which joke worked this one another night, that was a fascinating process. That was absolutely fascinating. And you realise how one round of applause or something like that, or one big laugh, can then kill the next three after it because people don't really listen. And, you know, just one night when... Richard falls over the sofa backwards and the whole sofa falls on top of him. He just couldn't get the sofa to fall backwards. So he had, had the three goes at it. And you think, oh, no, by this time, it's no longer... It's not longer funny. It's a piece of sort of... Uh, it's just somebody lugging around an inanimate object. I missed the... I missed... I missed the, the sound of laughter. But I always wanted to do something else. And I, I was just always interested in characters and um, exploring a little below the surface. And you had that more, I guess, with The Truth, your second novel. Yeah. That was interesting because he was a guy who was struggling to, basically, he wanted to write a novel, didn't he? But he was constantly getting sidetracked yes. by having to do yeah. factual things and then yeah. he's given this juicy project handed mm. to him. How much of that was what was rattling around in your head, wanting to do fiction but getting dragged off to do factual? Yeah, I think it was a, a lot of what was in my mind. I mean, I made a reputation then as a traveller, writing travel stuff, and people could, I could have done that to the, you know, cows come home. But also, I'd written one novel, and I loved the creation of characters, so I wanted to write another novel. And whilst being very, very anxious to make sure that the character in The Truth was not me at all, in any shape or form, he actually was experiencing my dilemma, <clears throat> which is what is really important. Is a novel that much more important? Them, you know, a nice travel book or taking somebody with you around the world. But but the the truth in the end, I decided to make it a a um, if you, if you like a serious novel rather than a comic novel because I think I've read too many comic novels who are just so light of touch you think oh well come on give them some edge. So in the end, um, I, I was quite I was made the decision to just tell a good story with the truth and if it, I, I just experience this problem out in India by going to the place where the uh, sacred mountains were about to be destroyed by some people who just wanted to make aluminium and some huge multinational. I really felt the story and I felt very indignant about it. So there's a lot of indignation in that book, which was great, actually. Indignation is almost as good as sort of laughter. You can hear that in a reader. And throughout this whole time, you're writing your diaries. 30 years so far, I think, have been published. And at the beginning, who were you writing them for? I was just writing them, honestly, for the record. Who that was for, I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm going to write down what I did the day before. Primarily for myself, I suppose, because I felt that things, interesting things were beginning to happen. My son was, had just been born. I, I felt, you know, a lot of life ahead, but things were really beginning to, to accelerate now. And 
and I should keep a, I just keep an eye on what, what I'd done and keep a record. So that was all. I suppose I, maybe I thought my family might be interested in all that, but most of the time it was purely a personal thing. The family very rarely read the diaries. I didn't show them to anybody else. But I was aware, as I, as I carried on with the diaries, to try and make them readable, to try and emulate good diarists that I'd read, um, whoever they were. You know, Simon Gray is a brilliant diarist and all that, and the way he martial material but also just um harold nicholson the way he does day-to-day life in london i thought that that can be interesting nicholson's diaries of the 19 early 1940s are absolutely fascinating because here was a man great wit intelligence sort of culture what we all want to be well informed thoughtful and carrying around a cyanide tablet with him because you know in the time of invasion that's what he and his wife were going to do they were going to take cyanide and, and I thought wow you know he put this in the diary great so but it was just uh, I, I think as a, also I felt as a historian it was a portrait of the times even little things that you put in might become useful later on in the diaries there's a nice moment where you're I can't remember what you're writing but you're looking out the window and there's a BT man who comes and yes. who faffs around with something yeah. and manages to fix it in an hour and then sort of buggers off again and you're sort of thinking there's a person sort of doing a proper job. And I'm always interested in the thought of, because I guess arguably I have a sort of media kind of fluffy kind of nonsense job. <laughs> and you think, is this actually a proper job? Is it worthwhile? I was wondering what you thought on that. Uh, it's, it's a real problem. I don't think really of anything that is particularly worthwhile at all. But I've always felt, well, deep down I'm an entertainer. That's what I do. I entertain. I don't sit in an office. I don't... I don't work out numbers, I haven't discovered DNA, I'm not a surgeon, I'm not an alpinist or anything like that, where you can, you know, there's a definite sort of things you achieve or not don't achieve. I'm an entertainer, and I'm trying to entertain people with whatever I'm doing, whether it's a serious novel, or it's being on stage doing a one-man show, or Python or whatever. That's what it all boils down to, your own fucking ego. <laughs> Michael Palin. Thanks very much for downloading this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend, subscribe, uh, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Basically, it just helps more people find it. Next week, Mike Bartlett, who wrote King Charles III, uh, Dr. Vossler, which is going back for a second series, and plays including uh, 13 and Bull. Thanks for listening.